woman named Kimberly Nies once shared a story with uh, the readers of Christianity Today about trying to be a, a good Christian mother. And she wrote this, We have always tried to instill in our children God's desire that they respect and obey their parents. One morning, following an evening of explaining the golden rule to my preschool daughter, Katie, I quizzed her. Okay, Katie, I said, what's the golden rule? With a look of exasperation, she replied, I know, I know, you're the mommy. That's, that's not that cute or funny? I don't know. It's all right. It's one of those stories that makes us snicker and say, oh, we exasperate our children. Uh, it's one of the stories that makes me then think about what little Katie is going to say later when she grows up because there's been this enormous upswell of I was raised in a fundamentalist home and now I'm free of all that. And many of these stories do seem to include uh, tales of, of kind of heavy-handed parenting, a lack of love, just tons and tons of rules. And some of them are just, there were standards and boundaries in my house, and isn't that terrible? Well, the idea that the Christian church has been a vehicle for quashing children's dreams and devaluing them to the status of third-class citizens at best has been around for a while, but it's growing and growing this idea that we're all just here telling children, you be quiet, memorize these Bible verses, don't question anything we teach you, don't do anything weird with your hair, and we'll get along just fine. But you step out of line for a moment, pow, I'm going to nail you. Now certainly the church is full of fallible humans, and the church visible is even full of uh, many unregenerate humans, and so there have been many cases that, that are out of line, but the fact remains that no other institution or religion or philosophy has done more for the elevation of the status of children than Christianity. And just look at the situation and world into which Paul was writing when he wrote these four verses. The, the Roman law, called patria potestas, which means the father's power, dictated that the father in a household had absolute control, with, with no, uh, no, no right given to wife or child or hired hand or bond slave. He had absolute control over the family. Children certainly had zero rights. There was no such thing as CPS. Children could be imprisoned, sold as slaves, there was no child labor laws at the time, so they could be scourged and put in chains and made to toil in the fields for 18 hours or more every day. They could even be put to death without a trial with no recourse at all. We have a letter from one Roman father to his wife from Alexandria that says, If, good luck to you, you have a child, should it be a boy, let it live. If it is a girl, throw it out. That also was normal practice. And the child then would be abandoned, left either to die of exposure or grabbed up by those who were trafficking in children. And what a horrible, horrible situation into which Paul then writes. Furthermore, a child never really came of age in the Roman world. The father's rights continued as long as he was alive. So then from the child's birth to the father's death, he was a tyrant who could rule with absolute authority. And even those in the Ephesian church who had a Jewish background and therefore had God's word and had uh, a lot of the, the built-in uh, justice that we find there, they also had tradition that we would kind of bristle at. Sirach 30, uh, Sirach is a book that's in uh, the Catholic Bible and the Apocrypha. It's not part of our Bibles. We don't consider it to be uh, inspired by the Spirit. But we read this, He who loves his son will whip him often in order that he may rejoice at the way he turns out. Bow down his neck in his youth, 
and beat his sides while he is young, lest he become stubborn and disobey you, and you have sorrow of soul for him. What we see in this passage is that St. Paul is teaching the very opposite of this notion, that you must break the spirit of your children, crush their will in order to get respect from them, so they'll turn out okay. Last week, we saw a similar thing happening with the husband and wife relationship, where the prevailing culture was one way, and Paul comes in and redefines the relationship. We saw that this this Jesus thing only means anything if it lives out in our human relationships. It can't just be vertical. It's got to spill over into the horizontal. That's what we see happening in Ephesians, like we do in all of the New Testament epistles. And a good test case for this is our closest relationships, our families. Because you can hide who you are pretty easily from coworkers or neighbors or even friends, but not so much from your family. They can see past it. I think it's noteworthy that the apostle spends a good chunk of this short letter laying these things out, these things we call the household codes. Our relationships in the home, then, being one decent test as to whether our relationship with God is authentic. And just as with the marriage relationship, this parent-child relationship is redefined with Christ at the crux, at the center. Crux, being Latin for cross, I guess, is even more fitting, isn't it? But remember, he said, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves the church. Christ is the defining point in both of these. And then here, in verse 1, we see, in the Lord... In the Lord, the Lord in the New Testament is almost always Jesus, by the way. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And then in verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So in the Lord, of the Lord, as the Lord, these things are all redefined, not from a humanistic point of view that says, what can I do? What can I get away with? What rights do I have to exert? But rather, how can I put Jesus at the center of this? And I want to point out something we probably would otherwise miss, that it's weird for Paul to even address these children directly at all. It was even a little weird for him to address the wives at all. But even as he's here telling children, obey your parents, this was unheard of. And he gives three verses to talking to the kids and only one to talking to the parents. We have existing other household codes from this time, from this part of the world, and all of them just say, okay, father of the house, here's how you rule your house correctly. It doesn't address the other members of the household. The gospel has turned this whole thing upside down. So he speaks first to wives, then to husbands, first to children, then to parents. And this new relationship between parents and children is rooted in the Lord, in His grace, in this idea of self-giving love and mutual submission. And I know somebody here is going, you've lost me now. That's nonsense. Are you serious? I was on board last week when you talked about husbands and wives and mutual submission, but parents and children? That would be chaos. Slow down. We saw last week how the word Paul, uh, the word Paul uses here, uh, submit means to place yourself beneath, right? And then we talked about and, and, and discovered how placing yourself beneath others is the example that Christ gave for all of us. I said Christ washing the feet of his disciples, over whom he certainly had authority, was a great example. Serving those that he had authority over. 
This is the model we have from Jesus, or the golden rule itself. It's not really, I'm the mommy. It's do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That shows a mutual submission. One brother or sister to the other does it not. Amongst Christians, this is the norm. Humble service, building others up. Certainly this doesn't mean that parents and children are equal in every way, in every sense, in every season of life in the relationship. Just look at the very first thing that St. Paul says to the kids in Ephesus. He's got two messages for them. And number one is obey. Obey your parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why? Simply for this is right. And this isn't just Christian ethics we're talking about. It's natural law. Now, granted, our culture is more and more sliding into this self-destructive downward spiral of thinking we're better than natural law. But from the earliest recorded history and through pretty much every culture around the world, children are expected to obey their parents. Occasionally, some ultra-forward-thinking celebrity will announce, I have a kid, and I've got this crazy philosophy, and it's really amazing, and it's going to be that I don't ever punish my kid, and I don't ever tell them no, and I just let them do whatever they want and let them flourish. And you can practically set your watch by these, sa- these same kids crashing and burning and their lives falling apart. It's incredibly sad. It is not loving to let our children go nuts and do whatever they like. It's, in fact, rather cruel. And for believers, the scriptures tie respect and obedience for parents with reverence and obedience of God himself. So if we allow our kids to disrespect us and we enable our children to disobey us and look the other way, we're teaching them to disrespect, dishonor, and disobey God himself. We read about this in uh, several passages in the New Testament in, in Romans, I mean, we, we tend to play down like the idea of disobeying parents as this cute little minor thing. But listen what Paul does with this in Romans 1. He is at the end of this long kind of uh, bullet list that's slowly bringing us from the introduction of sin to sin permeating all of mankind. And he says, since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Right in the midst of that list, murderers, slanderers, boastful, disobedient to parents. Or in 2 Timothy 3, he he ties this in with the markers of the last days. In the last days, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. It's not cute. In fact, it's a a very serious indicator that a society is moving in the wrong direction when children at large are encouraged to disobey. And it is a very scary portender of the future for an individual child if all they want to do is disobey and they don't have any sense of submitting to their parents and obeying them and honoring them. Because a child is pleasing the Lord, not just his or her parents, when they obey. Christ's obedience to the Father in all things is the model for Christian children when their parents are really cramping their style. And when their friends get to do way more stuff than they get to do. So that's the first one, obey. The second is honor. Certainly it is related. 
He, he gives us even an Old Testament uh, citation here. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. So this is one of the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Well, last week we talked a little bit uh, in this vertical, horizontal stuff about how the Ten Commandments seem to be broken up into what we call two tables. The first one being the vertical, the stuff between you and God, keeping the Sabbath, not taking his name in vain. The second one being the horizontal between you and your friends and family. And there are different ways of numbering the commandments, whether you're Lutheran or Catholic or Baptist or whatever. You might have different numbers on them. They're all the same commandments. And all of these in the Christian church put that commandment about honoring your father and mother at the very top of the second table. This is the one that starts off the horizontal relationships category of commandments. And, and that makes sense because it is, in a sense, fundamental and foundational to the rest of your human relationships. How someone treats his or her parents is going to indicate how they will treat their spouse, their neighbors, their boss, governmental authorities. Jesus makes a big idea out of this with the Pharisees. But there's actually a third way that these commandments are numbered, and it predates the other two. The Jewish way of numbering places this commandment to honor your father and mother at the bottom of the first table, the one between you and God, as the natural outpouring of how your relationship with God looks in your daily life. Because disobedience of parents is at the heart of spiritual rebellion. You know this if you've read the Old Testament and gotten to Deuteronomy 21 to read what happens in the Old Covenant world to a rebellious and stubborn son. We read, if a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen, then his father and his mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate, and they shall say to the elders of the city, this is our son, he is stubborn and rebellious, he will not obey our voice, he's a glutton and a drunkard, then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with witnesses, so you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and shall fear." That's a very serious thing. And perhaps that honor your father and mother commandment doesn't belong completely to our relationship with God or our relationships with our fellow humans. After all, a little secret, both of the tablets had all the commandments on them. It wasn't like one through five and six through. So maybe this middle commandment that says honor your father and mother is sort of a hinge between your relationship with God and your relationships with others. Then they're both right in a sense. And that would make sense because this is so very central. At the heart of any just society, there is an implied contract between parents and children. That parents owe their children shelter, food, clothing, safety, guidance, support. And children owe their parents obedience and honor. This isn't a cold, calculating transaction. It's not antithetical to love. In fact, it's how God designed us to show each other love in these relationships. We read in Romans 13, Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Children owe honor and obedience first to their God, then to their parents. And of course, as with last week, I can hear many people saying, hold on, it says in everything, 
What about abusive situations or, or situations where parents tell children to do something sinful? Should they obey in everything? Of course not. In every act of human submission, human submission has to take a backseat to our submitting to God. So with the apostles, we say we must obey God rather than men. This is the exception, but that leaves the rule. It means that God has for us something great in our rarital relationships. God has for us something great in our relationships between parents and children. What gets in the way is sin. Honor your parents, your father and mother. Now, I also could hear people say, hold on a minute. Does this assume we're all Christians? What if my parents are not believers? Do I have to honor them? And the answer is yes. Yes, indeed, you do. In fact, by honoring them, you may find that you are much more successful in telling them about Jesus. I remember one day doing a Q&A when I was a camp pastor at Lake Louise with 7th and 8th graders, and a couple of them were really upset and brokenhearted. They came to understand the gospel, and they're saying, my parents don't believe this stuff. My dad doesn't believe there's a God at all, and he gets kind of mad when people talk about it. What can I do to, to bring the gospel to them and help them believe? And I said, I know something that's very effective, but you don't want to hear it. And they said, no, no, we want to do it. I said, eh, it's, it's hard and it might take a long time, but I bet you it will have an impact. And they said, no, look, what is it? I said, simple, obey them. And their faces fell like, oh, I knew it would be something like that. <laughs> oh, obey them. I have seen this work. Parents whose children come to faith and they see a change in their children and say, what is going on with you? Why are you all of a sudden respecting and honoring and obeying me? And they say, Jesus. And it makes them say, well, if that had that impact on my kid, I got to see if this is something real. I got to look into this. Just as a husband and wife should not be asking, am I getting what I deserve? Then children should not be asking, how can I uh, find a loophole? How can I get off the hook? A husband and wife ought to be saying, how can I serve my spouse? A child ought to be saying, how can I find an area in which my parents are worthy of honor and give them so much honor in which they are worthy of emulation and emulate them and tell them, I want to be like you. Now, there's a promise here, and Paul makes something of it, dating back to the giving of the law that you will live long in the land. And this is something we have to address. I'm just going to address it briefly, but I've heard this misused often. The original context of this is you are leaving Egypt and I'm bringing you into a promised land. And if you, all, however many million of you, follow me, serve me, obey your parents and don't rebel, you'll live a long time in the promised land. And then he brings up the fact that there's a promise because it's the only commandment with a promise when telling kids to obey. What we don't want to do is turn this into some kind of strange children who obey live a long time. What, what does that do? Someone who dies young then was disobedient and, and not a good person. Children who die must have been disobedient. That quickly goes in a very dark direction that's very, very unbiblical. In fact, when we then take this in from the Old Covenant to the New and, and realize that the Promised Land was a type, a type of eternal life, then we say, okay, if you obey your father and mother, you will live forever in the land and we're not telling our kids, obey me, because that's how you achieve salvation. We're saying, if you are saved, you'll want to obey me, because that is what God's will is for you. What Paul's doing here is tying the picture of eternal life to the fulfillment of the promise in Christ. 
So then he turns his attention from talking to children to talking to parents. Or should I say to fathers? Moms, you can just check out if you want, I guess. Why just to fathers? Well, some have suggested that this reflects the culture that, again, the father would be the one who is making all the decisions, and so he's just kind of saying what people expect or going along with it. But more likely, it just reflects the Greek language in which Paul wrote. You'll often find in a newer translation of the Bible that it, it'll say brothers and sisters. Then you look at an older translation, and it just says brothers. And you say, which is it? Well, technically, the word is adolfoi, brothers. But in Greek, if you're talking to both, you go plural, masculine, and it's a broader term. It means siblings, brothers and sisters. And that's kind of the concept here. There's a word for father, a word for mother, and then there's another word for parents. But that word fathers in the plural often has to mean parents. In fact, it's even used that way in the Bible, where it has to mean parents. Look at Hebrews 11.23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born. Moses' parents. The word there in the Greek is father plurals. Pater in the plural. Moses did not have two dads. He had a mom. Her name was Yacheved or Jacobed, if you're really bad at pronouncing Bible names. Yacheved was his mother, and she and her husband together hid Moses in faith. So we see that this word probably indicates parents, not just fathers. Why so few Bibles translate it that way? I have no idea. Clearly, if you ask me, that's how it should be translated. Parents. Parents do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Perhaps part of it is that provoking children to anger sounds like something dads would do. I'll tell you by experience, moms and dads both can do it. You know that as well. And maybe it's just showing that we're, we're reading our own interpretation into our translations, and that's naturally going to happen. But please, if you don't have a footnote, maybe write a little marginal note. This word can mean parents. It does in Hebrews 11.23. Moms, you're back in. Come on. So there's two points here. There's two sides to his instruction to parents. One is negative. Don't do this. Then the other is, is positive. Do this instead. The negative is don't exasperate your children. Just like many husbands want to highlight that passage we looked at last week and say, yeah, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, but do not want to think about that one that says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid down his life for her. I think a lot of parents like to quote this biblical mandate for children to obey, 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 but don't want to worry at all about this mandate here. But it's important. In fact, it's twice given to us in the course of just a few books of the New Testament. You're probably aware that the books of Colossians and Ephesians are basically sister letters. Both are written to churches in Asia Minor that are not that far apart geographically. They're written almost certainly at the same time, sent out at the same time to address similar issues, and they actually have a lot of the very same language. It's an interesting study to read them side by side. And when we look at the parallel in Colossians to this text, we find Colossians 3, 20 through 21. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Now, a lot of translations will give that translation provoke in both verses, and it sounds like maybe Paul's saying the same thing. And I think he is saying the same thing, but he's doing it with two different Greek words behind it. And this gives us a little insight into what Paul is telling us not to do. What is he prohibiting here? Well, in Ephesians, 
this word literally means to bring up anger in someone. Don't bring up anger in your kids. And this is a tendency that, that parents have. You know, go ahead and slam the door. Slam it harder. I don't care. You don't like it? Deal with it. I'm in charge. The golden rule. It's not, I'm the dad, I'm the mom, and, and you know, you can deal with it, like it or hate it or lump it or whatever. It's do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So we need to take this seriously and not be indifferent to provoking our children to wrath. You could be leading them into grievous sin, horrible sin. And remember what Jesus said about those who lead children into sin. It involves a millstone, a rope, your neck, and the sea. We don't want to go down that road, certainly. Well, in Colossians 3, it's a different word translated provoke, and it's broader. It's actually used in a good sense in 2 Corinthians 9. When he says, hey, Corinthians, I've told those Macedonian Christians about your zeal and your faith, and it has stirred them up. So stirring them up in a good way. It's also used, as it is here, in a bad way. When Paul says, do not exasperate your children, do not irritate your children, perhaps the best translation would be embitter your children. Why not? Because Christian children who are trying to obey their parents, trying to honor their parents, will become discouraged in that. You don't want that. Why would we want that? As parents, our job is to build them up, teach them, encourage them. We, we want to be the kind of parents they want to honor, not to discourage them, tear them down, make them angry, and lead them into sin. And, and I just take a moment and reflect on how radical a teaching that is in view of the cultural context I told you about, where the, the father is the iron fist who rules however he likes. He's saying, don't enrage your child. Don't exploit the legal rights you have. Don't alienate them. Don't belittle them. Instead, do everything you can to foster love. Actually care how they feel. Unheard of in that Roman world. Unheard of. And the idea of setting aside your rights, this is something that comes up again and again in the New Testament. And it applies even in parenthood. Because provoking to anger has the potential to drive a wedge between you and your child that could last the rest of your lives. Overly stern, heavy-handed parents have driven many people away from the faith and away from Christ. This book here was used as a rod to beat me and to tell me how bad a jerk I was all the time. Why would I want anything to do with it? Luther's father was strict to the point of cruelty. In fact, he was so stern that Luther, for the rest of his life, found it difficult to pray, Our Father in Heaven. Because as soon as he said, Our Father, he had all these memories of a very cold and unloving earthly father. And many people today have that same experience. But if this is kind of a broad term that's used in Colossians, and it's the same idea as this raising someone up into anger, what does it look like where the rubber meets the road? Well, I think there are many different ways that this can happen, that we can provoke our children to wrath, or we can provoke them in a way that is discouraging. I think the most obvious is just perpetual criticism and fault-finding. This is an easy thing for people to fall into once they get going on it. Why are you doing that? What are you, is that what you're wearing? Look at this place as a pigsty. Just always, always finding fault and criticizing. Unrealistic standards is another. Something that cannot be achieved, but I'm going to hold you to it. A lack of encouragement and rewards. All stick, no carrot in parenting. That's not a good way to go. That will eventually provoke wrath. Overindulging. That almost seems like the opposite, but it's not. 
it still winds up discouraging. You see the fruit of that even in the Old Testament, right? Eli, the high priest, is seemingly a godly man, but for the way he raises his kids where they can do whatever they want. And they run roughshod all over him. And what happens, not only does it ruin their lives and end their lives and ruin Eli's life and end his life and ruin his wife's life, uh, one of the priest's wife's lives because she dies in childbirth, it ruins Israel's life for a while. Proverbs 13, 24, often quoted, he who spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is careful to discipline him. So be careful. Parents who are negligently permissive until they've had enough tend to snap, and then they become the opposite, what they were trying to avoid all the while, because they were trying to be the cool parent. And by the way, that proverb, don't let that drag you into a debate about corporal punishment or anything. The rod is metaphorical 99% of the time in the Bible. It means to exercise authority. Exercise authority. If you don't, it shows that you hate your child. Another way that we provoke children to wrath or provoke them in a way that discourages them is showing favoritism, comparing one child to another. Why don't you have the strengths of this one? And why don't you have the strengths of this one? And kind of pitting them against each other. We do this when we don't admit our mistakes or double down on them because of pride. Again, this mutual submission thing means that pride goes out the window and I lower myself and humble myself. And my child then sees me being humble, ideally. It happens with neglect, whether physical or emotional. If we are not caring for our children, that can provoke them and discourage them. Abusive words, obviously, sarcasm, ridiculing, cursing. I wish there was a law that if I see you cursing at your child, especially little child, that it was legal for me to pop you one in the nose. And don't think I wouldn't do it because I'm a pastor. I'd just hold back a little bit, but just enough to make you go, what are you doing? Yeah! Don't swear at your child for crying out loud, especially if you claim to be a follower of Jesus. And finally, another way I think is for a parent to use the other parent as a threat against the children. This also can be easy to do. Oh, and dad gets home, you're going to get it. And what happens then is that the child then starts to think of one parent as uh, the passive-aggressive one attacking, and the other one is the aggressive-aggressive one attacking, and where is his ally in all this? And this stuff, of course, is all compounded when divorce is in the picture and gets even more difficult and requires even more of God's leading. And, and I want you to notice that this is all still underneath the theme of be filled with the Spirit. He's not talking about stuff we can do by our own strength. We can't. He's talking about things that require the Spirit at work in us. And I could go on and on and on about all the things we can do wrong and all the things we have done wrong and we do wrong and all the horrible effects that they have. But at the end of the day, just a mother and father ought to be authorities in their home, just not in an authoritarian way, divorced from love and affection and a true interest in their own children. None of this is a call to shirk responsibility and discipline and just be your, your kid's buddy and that's it, nothing more. Discipline should never be done, though, out of anger. Count to ten minutes, at least, before you discipline a child when you are angry. Otherwise, it will be disproportionate. And it won't be done with the child's good in mind, but with me kind of getting this off my chest, and it'll be cathartic for me. Well, that's me-centered parenting. That's not how it should look. Children have a built-in sense of justice. It's not perfect, but they have it, 
and they will be provoked to wrath if they get disproportionate punishments all the time. We should be helping to build up that sense of justice into something that is more fully biblical and good. So love, encouragement, understanding, patience, these are things that will take the gifts and personality and interests and cause them to blossom rather than snuffing them out. That will fan the smoldering wick that children so often can be rather than saying, well, you know what? Enough of that. I just want a a few minutes of peace and quiet. There was a viral video earlier this year that everybody shared. Everyone's going to be mad at me for talking about this because they thought it was great. But it was this little boy, he's about three years old, standing there in his underwear, covered his torso, his face, his arms in green marker. And it was the mom, she was southern, so was the kid, that's usually how it works. And, uh, and she's, she's kind of dressing him down. What did you do? I drew on myself with markers. Why would you do that? Because I wanted to look like a bad guy and I'm sorry. And oh my gosh, it was so cute, it was very, very adorable. And, and uh, she, he said, are you mad? And she says, I am mad. She says, is daddy going to be mad? She says, I don't know, but probably. And then he says, well, what if I thought about what I did? And she says, do you think thinking about what you did will make that green marker disappear from all over your chest? And he said, no, but a bath might. And I'm not trying to mom shame or anything. I'm sure this lady's a great mother. I mean, she's got all these videos and people knew about her and follow her. I'm sure that, that she's, she's a wonderful mother, shows a lot of love. I was freaked out by the responses to the video. All the people jumping on going, yes, exactly. These little kids think they can get away with stuff like that when they're little, then they get bigger and they're out in the street with guns and drugs, right? Yeah, this is what we need. More hard-nosed parenting. But is it? He's three. What would have happened if she had said, you wanted to be a bad guy? Well, you, yeah, wow, you look like a bad guy. You, in fact, you're freaking me out. Why don't we go put you in the bath and wash the marker off, and then next time maybe ask mom or dad before you draw on yourself, okay? Would that have been the end of the world? William Barclay tells the story of a famous artist, Benjamin West. You've probably seen, he, he, he painted the kind of standard uh, oil painting of Benjamin Franklin with the, with the kite and the key and the electricity not too long after all that allegedly happened. And when he was a boy, his mother went out for a while, leaving him in charge of his younger sister, Sally. And he started rooting around in some cabinets and found a few bottles of colored ink and got the bright idea, I'm going to use this afternoon painting a portrait of my sister. And so, of course, in the process, he made a huge mess. And his mother got home, and she saw all the bottles and the ink stains and all the rest and didn't say a word about it. Instead, she walked over, picked up the piece of paper, and said, why, it's Sally. Leaned down and kissed him on the forehead. And this great 18th century artist told people his whole life, my mother's kiss made me a painter. She didn't yell at him and shame him and get angry, although I'm sure she was a little bit miffed that she'd have to clean all that up. Rather, she inspired in him a love of art that would make him a great and successful and renowned artist. And a father can have the very same effect. Encouragement instead of provoking. Now, I'm going to have a teenager in a month, and I'm ready for war. I'm not really. Actually, if I was ready for war, I think that'd be what I would get immediately. But I'll tell you what, I remember being a teenager, not 13, but 16, 17, with all the angry chemicals flowing through my body. And I remember then being ready to want to slug it out figuratively with my parents all the time. 
having a little thing to say all the time, being angry all the time. And I'll tell you, I remember my father, especially, but both my parents, being so very good at using a gentle answer to turn away wrath while still expecting me to honor and obey them, not taking the bait, not provoking, and, and not taking these, these potential rifts between us and amping them up and amping them up, but rather saying, let me approach this in a Christ-like way. I think this is the key to parenting. Certainly there's a time for tough love and for discipline, but as parents we have to remember again what the golden rule is and what it's not. It's do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Not do unto others as they want you to, because that means just giving kids nothing but candy and video games, but as you would have them do unto you. You, the parent, have to have the wisdom, the discipline to know what is best for a child. You have the life experience, and of course you have the Holy Spirit guiding you. And look, if you're a parent, you've snapped, you've yelled at your kids, you've taken out your stress from earlier in the day on them because they gave you a little lip, and that was the straw that broke the camel's back, and you couldn't yell at your boss earlier, but you can yell at your kid because your kid can't fire you, and you did it, and you felt horrible. Here is a crazy strategy, and I I pull it right out of the, the pages of Scripture. Apologize. Apologize to your children when you snap at them, when you yell at them, rather than saying, well, you know what, you you should have known what you were wrong to begin with. Make it right and parent in a way that is rooted in the gospel to say to your child, listen, what you did was wrong and I do things that are wrong too. And when I do, I have to confess to God and he forgives me because Jesus died for my sins and I have to confess to the person that I wronged and hope that they forgive me. And, and in, that, in that teaching moment, the gospel is magnified. A light is shined on the gospel rather than a rift driven between you. John Calvin translated this next verse, bring them up, bring them up in the instruction and discipline. He translates it, let them be fondly cherished. And then emphasizes the ideas of gentleness and friendliness in parenting. Who knew that John Calvin was such a sweetheart? But that brings me to this final piece of this here, the positive side of the instructions to parents. Not only do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Notice those two things tied together. Disciplining children should be instruction for them in the Lord. The first overt reference to teaching in the whole Bible has to do with a father, Abraham, the great patriarch, raising up his son and teaching him to be a godly man. That's Genesis 18, 19. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And in all this, we see that that parents then need to be in the word if they're going to bring up their children in the word. It's not like faking your way through tutoring someone when you're a teenager. You're like, I just got to stay one class ahead of that kid and I'll be okay. No, no, no. Kids will see through that. Surely some learning, a lot of learning, happens simply by children observing their parents. But the Christian faith is not something that can be absorbed through osmosis. We also see we have to talk about spiritual things in the homes. And that's something that many Christian parents don't want to do or don't think they have the time to do or don't think they're equipped to do and think it's just the pastor and the youth pastor and the Sunday school teacher's job to do. But in Deuteronomy 6, from the very beginning of this idea of of covenantal family relationship, we see these words have I commanded you today. 
They shall be on your heart. So first on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Talking about spiritual things. Proverbs 22 says, Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Of course, a proverb is a general truth, not a guarantee that in every situation do A, therefore B. And there are many situations and examples in which godly parents have seen their children sadly go astray. But that fits with this new approach to parenting that Paul is giving us, where he actually addresses children themselves as moral agents. This assumes that they are their own people with their own will, their own soul, and they bear some responsibility for how they will turn out as well. Last week we talked a little about Cain when he killed Abel. And remember, Cain's parents were Adam and Eve. They weren't perfect, certainly. They were the first not perfect people, but they knew a lot about God and they taught their children about God. And we saw in that text from God's own lips that this act of murder came out of Cain's own sinful heart. He couldn't blame mom and dad for his downfall. And if you have children, especially grown children, who are not walking with the Lord, it may be a temptation to give up. Do not give up. Continue to model an understanding, loving, patient, Christ-like attitude. And wear holes in all the knees of all your pants praying for them. And wear holes in the floor at home praying for them. Because we know that God changes hearts. And if you are not a parent or a child, and you're thinking, good grief, I just chose the wrong day to come to Judson. I should have just enjoyed this beautiful weather. Are these passages a waste of time to read about children and parents if you aren't a child anymore and you aren't a parent? No. First of all, some of you who are not parents will be at some point. I remember being in Promise Keepers, and uh, being 16, 17, 18, and it was back in the golden era. I remember they would talk about the different, the seven promises. They'd go through them, and they were like, here's how to be a good husband. And I'd be like, well, I'm 16, so I'm not a husband. And I remember my pastor saying, don't, don't just zone out. Listen, lock it away. You'll use it later. And I did. And you know what? I did use it later. And then I got married. And for, what, eight years I was married and was not a parent. And I would hear people preaching and teaching, and I'd read my scriptures about being a parent. And I remembered Ed Pedley's words, and I locked it away. And I don't remember all of these things perfectly, but God will bring some of it to mind sometimes. Don't skip over parts of the Bible you think don't apply to you. Besides, you have parental roles in your life anyway. You've, you've been in charge of a youth group or a Sunday school class where you've gotten to speak into the lives of children and fill that role in a, in a way that's going to bear fruit for the rest of their lives. Or you have a niece or a nephew. You are, in a sense, a Samuel for someone. Or, or you, do you remember when Samuel was brought into Eli's... Samuel, Eli did a better job with Samuel than he did with his own two sons. He should have been there for his sons, but he certainly was there for Samuel. Or you're a Priscilla or an Aquila for someone, bringing them up in the faith because their parents did not do that. Or you've got grandchildren. More and more we see people helping to raise their grandchildren. A bunch of the books we just got in this last batch for the library were about grandparents raising their grandchildren. And we read back in Deuteronomy 4, Take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. There is a biblical role for grandparents 
to be teaching the faith. And ultimately, all of these things are exercises in following Jesus and being Christ-like, which is something that we all, as Christians, need to do. Christ obeyed his parents, even though he was sinless and they were not. Just like I obeyed my parents, even though in my eyes I was sinless and, and... Wait, no, I didn't obey them all the time. But in the midst of horrible agony, Jesus' thoughts go to others. His thoughts are going outward in this agape love that we see modeled in these household codes. Some of his last thoughts and words are about taking care of his mother and making sure she'll be okay. He submitted to his heavenly father. He loved his bride so much that he endured the worst possible torments on her behalf, our behalf. If you want to know the yardstick of Christian love, don't ask, what can I get? But ask, how can I serve? What can I give? Because it is a cross-shaped yardstick. Don't miss the context here. This whole household code we've been unloading last week, this week, next week, it gets filed underneath, be filled with the Spirit. Live your life in the Spirit. We cannot do any of this stuff on our own, but the Spirit can. And don't get frustrated then, because the Spirit indwells you. Yes, I can hear someone saying, well, that's all well and good, but you can't be Christ-like when you're dealing with a defiant toddler in the middle of a crazy temper tantrum, or a surly teenager who's sneering and, and saying all these things under his breath, or you can't honor and obey my dad. It's like he thinks he's a drill sergeant, or my mom. Her, her mood swings cause, you know, you need Dramamine for these things. I hear you, and I agree. Sometimes that's the case, that in the words of Jesus, with man, these things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. This is life in the Spirit, mutual submission. Love one another with Christ-like love that puts the other first. Heavenly Father, we thank you for passages that, that remind us that the relationships in the home and the relationships in the church and the relationships with our neighbors are indicators of what our relationship with you is like. That, Lord, if we think that we are close to God and yet we are often in anger and hatred turning against our fellow human beings, we need to reassess where we stand. And, Lord, we pray that at the heart of our devotion would be a love that spills out horizontally, first and foremost, to those in our own homes and those in the household of faith, in our church, and those who are our neighbors, and Lord, those, those who are our co-workers, that Lord, the love of God would not come down and just stay with us so that we could enjoy it, but Lord, that we would spread it around, that it would go out of us, and that there would be salt and light in this dark and flavorless world, and Lord, that it would begin with each of us. We pray that you would help those of us who are struggling to honor our father and mother, any children struggling to obey their parents, Lord, Give them the desire to do it, the will to do it. Lord, help them when they fail, when they miss the mark, to confess and set themselves again to trying to obey you. And Lord, we pray for all parents here who are struggling with not provoking children to wrath. To anyone hearing my words right now, whether in this moment on the live stream or later on on the website, Lord, I pray for all of them right now that they would know that they can make a great difference and that they can yield a great fruit of, of righteousness and, and blessedness and joy going generations down the road by bringing the gospel into the core of their parenting and doing it with grace, not provoking their children, but loving and training them up, forgiving them, being patient and kind, and modeling all of these things after Christ. In your holy name we pray. 
Amen.